This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our show is based out of Oxford, Mississippi, just south of Memphis, a town that a lot of interesting people live in. Anthony Bourdain did an hour on the Delta and spent solid part of that hour for CNN right here in our humble little town. Recently, our producer Jesse Edwards had a chance encounter with one of those people sitting at a bar. He started a conversation with someone who seemed like an interesting character with an amazing story to tell. Here's Jesse. So I'll just start basically where uh, how we met up the other night. City Grocery Bar. Yeah, at the bar. You're a writer, <laughs> you're a musician, and uh, your father of twin daughters. You're a former marketing executive. And you're the author of Gatherings Recipes from the <laughs> Rustic Soul of... <laughs> Healdsburg? Is that how you pronounce like, it? Yeah, Healdsburg. Sounds like somebody was on Google. For yeah, me, you know? <laughs> absolutely. I, I pulled, pulled it right from your website. It wasn't too much work. But, yeah. <laughs> but we, I was out at, uh, at the bar the other night with my wife. Right. And we started talking, just basic chit-chat. You were sitting at the bar enjoying a nice margarita. And uh, we were talking about authors here in Oxford, Mississippi, and um, talking about literature and some of your favorite writers. And we started talking about our careers and everything. I thought you were a pretty interesting guy. Um, so, you know, I figured I'd, I'd bring you down here one of these days. So I went home. You must have had a couple of drinks by that. Oh, time. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think I was three pints in uh, some nice IPA. That's right. That's right. So that I went home idea. and I Googled your name and then suddenly a picture of you and Eric Clapton playing guitar on stage popped up. And I thought to myself, <laughs> why didn't you mention that at the bar? That, that you were this, uh, this guitar player. And I, I probably have a good understanding of why, but I'd like to hear it from you. Uh, well, it's uh, over the years, I'm the last person to mention that part of my history. Right. Um, you know, inevitably, like you, it, you know, it'll come up in conversation or if I'm at a dinner party and I'm getting introduced and stuff. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't, that's not how I identify myself any longer. Um, sure. And, you know, people bring it up and then folks will come back around in the party. And so, dude, you know, <laughs> you, you played with them and you were the other guy and Clapton and Dylan and all that. Yeah. Um, you know, part of it is it was a, you know, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Um, it was an absolute dream come true, obviously, to play in a band at that on that stage you know, of their career. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the band was absolutely the biggest band in the world at that time. And that band was the Dire Straits. Dire Straits. You played yeah. guitar with the Dire Straits. Right. So before we, we talk about that, we'll get yeah. into that in a sure. little bit. But let's start from the beginning of your, your life. Where were you born? Wow. Where are you from? Okay. Just a, just a quick little jump into uh, who you are. Okay. Um, Western Pennsylvania, coal mining town, Indiana, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, both my grandfathers were coal miners. Italian on one side, Swedish, Polish on the other side, my mom's side. And uh, my dad, we were, uh, when he was in the army, when I was, you know, an infant and up to two years old, we were in the South. So Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. And I think that that got instilled in me in a very early age, the South. After, <laughs> after that, I've, I've led a really a gypsy life. My dad got into uh, insurance. And each sort of, you know, climb up the corporate ladder was another move to another state and another school. And I did three different high schools in three years in three different states. Pretty rough on a kid. It, it gets a little weird. Yeah. You know. I'm going to make new friends. and You're, you know, perennially the, um, you know, the new guy. And, you know, high school's tough enough. You're trying to, trying to get your identity together, figure out who you are, what you want to do. 
and try to fit in, and then you get jerked out of that into another place. Um, throughout my life, uh, I'll fast forward a little bit. Uh, when I moved to New York City to play music, every September <laughs> I moved to a new apartment. Mm-hmm. It's just this sort of you know thing in my bones. It's like oh, I gotta I gotta move. I gotta go someplace else. Um, I went to University of Connecticut. Uh, for a year, the plan was to study literature. That's I'd always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a little kid. Playing music was something that I loved. I played piano, then trumpet. The happiest day of my life was getting braces, so I didn't have to play trumpet any longer. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody told me about Miles Davis back then. It was all school marching band stuff. So, you know, if someone hipped me to that, maybe I would have been a little bit different. But, um, And I was sort of on the path to to go to school and I figured I would, you know, get a master's and maybe a doctorate, be a teacher, write, you know, and end up being teaching in some, you know, private girls college in upstate New York and being the volleyball coach at the same time. <laughs> sort of Nobokov <laughs> fantasy, right? It's um, a very specific fantasy. Yeah, no, I had it worked out and pretty, <laughs> all of my dreams have been very, very specific <laughs> with one exception. And I'll get that. Remind me and I'll tell you about my daughters. Um, yeah. The, uh, and somewhere in, in all of that, I was at University of Connecticut and wasn't really happy. I got accepted to Bard, um, was going to transfer to Bard, and my folks, it was just a situation where they weren't going to be able to afford it. It was a really, you know, it, it still is, but even back then it was a pretty, you know, expensive school. And so I went, well, okay, screw that. I'll, you know, if I can't go do that, I'm going to go, I'm going to go be a rock and roller and went to music school. Yeah. And Hartford, uh, Hartford Conservatory of Music and studied uh, in their jazz and pop program. After graduating, played, played in a few bands in the area around Hartford. And I, I literally left school and was playing six nights a week in a band that it was, you know, kind of a Holiday Inn circuit band. So I had to play everything from Bossa Novas to the Top 40 stuff. It was good, you know, it was good, good education. I was playing with a keyboard player at the time who had... Was, had lived in New York, was a session player in New York for many years, had gone to Eastman College. Um, and he was at Wesleyan University studying ethnomusicology. He was studying Ghanaian drumming. I told, I warned you, man, my, my stories go, <laughs> they're long and they, they go around. Um, and Michael Holmes, brilliant, brilliant keyboard player, excellent songwriter. He's playing in this band while he was at school and he asked me one night, we were sitting out on a break and he said, so what are you, what are you doing here? You know, what are you doing in Hartford? What are you going to do? I said, man, well, you know, I want to go to, I want to study with somebody in New York. I want to study with a great, you know, great guitar player. And he was, and he said, well, you know, let me give you, here, I'll give you a phone number, a couple of phone numbers in New York. You call these guys, find out, you know, who, who's teaching. So he gives me Steve Gadd and Tony Levin's phone numbers. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. You're listening to an interview between our producer, Jesse Edwards, and the other guitarist from Dire Straits. Jack Sonny. More after these messages. You get a shiver in the dark, it's raining in the park, but meantime. Sound of the river, you stop and you hold everything. Your standing old guitar is all he can afford. When he gets up under the lights, play his. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. And now, back to our interview with the other guitarist from the Dire Straits, 
and his fascinating story. I was playing in this band while he was at school, and he asked me one night we were sitting out on a break, and he said, so what are you, what are you doing here? You know, what are you doing in Hartford? What are you going to do? I said, no, well, you know, I want to go to, I want to study with somebody in New York. I want to study with a great, you know, great guitar player. And he was, he said, well, you know, let me give you, here, I'll give you a phone number, a couple of phone numbers in New York. You call these guys, find out, you know, who, who's teaching. So he gives me Steve Gadd and Tony Levin's phone numbers. Now, even as a kid, I knew that those two names have been on (laughs) albums, you know, even back then, it was like a crazy list. And I was like, you know these guys? He goes, oh, yeah, that was my band in New York. And I, I was so stunned. And he said, yeah, call him up. Tell him I gave you the numbers and see what happens. So I called Steve Gatt up, talked to him for a few minutes. And he was like, yeah, I don't, don't really know. He actually answered the phone. That was the craziest part. And he said, no, you should probably talk to Tony. And I called Tony Levin. Tony first thing was like, well, if you're playing with Michael, why do you need lessons? Why don't you just move to New York? And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm right. And he said, well, there are two guys, Steve Kahn and Elliot Randall from Steely Dan. And I went, I, I will go study with Elliot Randall. And Elliot was my entree into New York. And I took a few lessons with him, which basically was sitting around listening to albums and trading licks and him turning me on to this endless music a lot of it that i had i had not been exposed to you know uh, how old were you uh I, at that time i would have been about 25 so you stayed in new york for what another 10 years or so yeah i was in new york from 76 to january 1st of 1985 which was when i got on a plane to go <laughs> with mark to uh montserrat to work on the album mark Knopfler. yeah wow so you were in New York for, for 10 years, mm-hmm. trying to become a rock star, basically, trying to become a musician, anything that, yeah, exactly. that, would, that would work. And then you got a phone call one day to, how did you meet Mark? Yeah, it's a, it's a little crazier than that, because it involves literature again. Um, I was in New York. I initially went to try to be a side, side guy, session player, and that really wasn't my thing. That wasn't my temperament. I don't have the diplomatic and political skills to do that, (laughs) to just grin and play. And um, so I I started playing in bands. Uh, It was a great music scene in New York at that time, the late 70s and early 80s. It was, disco was still sort of happening, kind of coming down. The punk scene was starting to come up, and there was a really vibrant singer-songwriter folk thing still happening in the village, in Greenwich, uh, Greenwich Village. And that's where I ended up gravitating to. I had a band... My own band, I was playing in other bands. I ran a Monday night jam at a place called Kenny's Castaways that became sort of the place for anybody who was around in town to come and come and hang out and jam. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, at, at one point when I decided that I wasn't going to be a session player, that I was going to try to do my own thing or find a band, I got a job on 48th Street in New York in a, in a guitar shop. And I had worked in record stores and, and music stores as a kid and worked at this place called Rudy's Music Stop. And it, it was the prototypical boutique guitar shop. It was all parts and it was at a time when Fender and Gibson weren't making great guitars. And it, be, it became the center of the universe for guitar players in New York. And, um, you know, I sold guitars to Pete Townsend and... I mean, just it, it was everybody, right? I, sure. I don't start dropping names, but and you know, one day 
I came into work and Rudy, the owner, was like all excited. And, and I said, what, you know, what? And he's going, that guy, that guy that you, he gave me, I gave, had given him the Dire Straits album, the first album with Sultans of Swing on it. Because I, I, this always, you know, sounds ridiculous, but I wasn't a big fan. I was never a big fan of the band. I, at the time that that album came out, I was so deep into Bowie and Talking Heads and Adrian Ballou and Carlos Allen, that sort of funk, hard rock, Hendrix thing, right? Sure. <clears throat> and I, I, I heard Sultans of Swing and thought, well, that's a cool tune and great time. You know, it sounds like J.J. Cale and Dylan and all that. And I've, I've done my blues thing and I'm sort of somewhere else. Yeah. So I gave the album to Rudy because I knew he, you know, it's got that pure Strat tone, and we were all about tone. And I said, "You're going to love this guy," and he did. He comes, <laughs> I come in the store one day months later, and he's all excited, and he's he's telling me that guy, that guy from Dire Straits came in. I'm like, "Yeah, okay, cool." You <laughs> know, it's like you know, when Jeff Beck shows up, I'll get excited, right? You know, and and Mark wandered in later, and he came into the store to do a a. Um, they had set up a, an interview. He had a TV interview that he was doing with the local guy, so they did it in the shop. And I, I had been out all night. Part of my routine in those days started to fall into, like, working at the shop. I would go home. I'd take a nap. I'd wake up. I'd go play a gig because you don't start gigs until, you know, some of my gigs didn't start till midnight because the bars were open until 4. And then I would go to after-hours bars and hang out. And often I would go to the store unlock it and like fall asleep on the f- <laughs> crash out on the floor until it was time to open the store rather than go home. This wasn't one of those days, but I'd been in an after hours bar and I was hung over, <laughs> still drunk and, and hung over and, you know, met Mark and he looked at me and he said, man, you know, you look like you could use <laughs> some hair of the dog. And we went out after the interview, after the store closed, we went out for a drink and we became drinking buddies from that day on for three years. I mean, when he was in New York, we just hung out and either at his house or we'd go out to the clubs. He, he used to come and sit in with my band mm-hmm. and um, there was never any discussion about me playing in his, his band. Never he came up. Never came up. He yeah. had his band. Um, I was interested in, in him as a dude and a great guitar player, but it wasn't like I was, dude, get me a gig, get me a gig, get me a gig. There was some talk about, you know, uh, if he ever thought that I had gotten a bunch of tunes together that, you know, he might produce it or mm-hmm. something. But never, never really came up. As a matter of fact, he, he used to ask me, like, why I was hanging out with him. His fame had happened so quickly that, you know, over time, he didn't have a lot of people that he, my feeling, he didn't have a lot of people he could trust, you know. And I was like... Understandable. I yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, and it happens. And, you know, it... it, it I've Later on, I kind of saw it up very up close, right? How that how that things change, and um, you know, I, t- <laughs> I told him one night, it's like, look, man, I've played with great guitar players. Uh-huh. I've studied with great guitar players. I know great guitar players. You're a great guitar player, and I, you know, I have to believe that I'm one phone call away from what where you are. Right. That's, or else I might as well quit. You gave up. There I did, for a while. which was where I was just going with that. Yep. Right. Um, New Year's Day of 1983, I had burnt, I had been burning the candle at both ends, living that lifestyle. Nothing was happening for me. 
all of my friends were getting gigs and David Bowie came and took my entire band except for me oh, <laughs> at geez. one point. And I was the guy who turned my, some of my bandmates on to, but it's like, you got to be listening to heroes and these albums. And it just felt like lightning was striking all around me and not me. And I just, it broke my brain. You know, I literally just, I collapsed um, and had, was ill for about nine months before they could kind of figure out what it was. And they never really figured out. They just kind of cured it. I had this massive migraine for, for nine months. So, you know. Dr. Freud will tell you that I brought that on and all that, which I believe now. And it just, I was unhappy and it wasn't happening and I was in despair of massive depression. And I decided, okay, if it's going to kill me, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I got to go. I'm, I'm, I'm done. This is, you know, I was approaching 30 and was like starting to lose my hair. It was like, this is not going to happen, you know. And I decided to go back to school. I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to writing. And I applied at Fordham and took. Uh, an exam there, I filled out this huge a- application, took an entrance exam there, and got a December of this early December of 1984. I got accepted to a full ride at Fordham on a Rockefeller grant for this special experimental school thing that they were doing for guys coming back to school. Interesting. And I was like, all right, you know. I'm I'm going back to I'm going to go do what I set out to do to begin with. This has been an interesting sort of round, and you know I'll deal with waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror and going, you know, if I hung on just one more day, was it would that you know another week would that have done it? Mm-hmm. And that's the illness. That's that's what happens. And this is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. And when we come back, we're going to hear more with Jesse and the other guitarist from Dire Straits, Jack Sonny. More after these messages. American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. And now, back to our interview with the other guitarist from the Dire Straits and his fascinating story. You had this initial rush, come out, go out and become a musician. You kind of gave up on that. You had a breakdown. You were crushed by the, the weight of the world, kind of. Then you found your resolve. You're, uh, you're writing again. You, you've, you've found uh, the right track. And things were going good again. And then you got a phone call. Yeah, it was literally seven days after I got the acceptance letter. So I never actually started school. Wow. I I got the letter, told my parents I was going back. It's like, you know, hoping that they would be relieved finally that I was going to get a real, you know, start a real career. And um, I got a phone call from Mark early in the morning. Now, and I had just seen him at Thanksgiving. He had been down in, in Montserrat with the band working on working on the album. 
And again, it was like, you know, he's, he's got his thing. I'm doing my thing. And um, I hadn't told him at that point that I, I had decided to, to leave. I hadn't told anybody that I was going to go back to school and do anything. Um, and we hung out at Thanksgiving. And he was just, ta- we were talking about bands. And he was saying that it hadn't turned out to be quite what he expected it to be, that he missed just having a band. It didn't seem like that any longer. And, and, and then he started t- talking to me about you know, quitting and staying in the, <laughs> just working for Rudy and, and, and working in the shop. And you know, he said it could be a good life. And, you know, it's, and I was arguing with him saying it's easy for you to say <laughs> from where you sit yeah. th- that it's easy to give up. You know? But anyhow, so I, we had had that conversation. He went back to, went back to Montserrat. I get this phone call early in the morning, which is kind of odd for him because he would call me from all over the world, but they generally it'd be like after a show or, you know, late at night, wherever he was. And we'd chat about stuff and, um, argue about Springsteen and <laughs> well, like, what was the argument there? Oh, he was a big fan. And you're not, I'm not such a fan. Hey, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I, I've never understood it. <laughs> me neither. I've seen him, you know, for everybody who tells me, Oh, you got to see him live. It's like, I've seen him live so many times. And I just like, Man, I do not get it. But, <laughs> right there with you. Okay. So, <laughs> so I get this phone call. It's early in the morning. He, li- he actually woke me up. It was that early. And I was like, hey, you know, what's going on? I was like, ah, oh, you know, just down here working on the album. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, everything all right? And he's like, yeah, you know, we, uh, I, had to, I had to let the other guitar player go. Let's get, this was Hal Wins at the time. And... Uh, and I said, oh, man, that's a drag. And I said, but, you know, Mark, you always told me you weren't so happy, blah, blah, blah. He ended up, Mark ended up playing all the guitar parts anyhow in the recordings and all that. And I said, oh, okay, you know. So and then there's silence, you know. And he says, well, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just getting up. I'm getting ready to go to this, go to this shop and open it up. And he's like, no, no, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know what you mean. He said, "How would you? What would you think about coming down and finishing the album and doing the tour?" Wow! And I, you know, like one of those things where I pulled the phone away, knocked it on the, you know, on the counter, just kind of going, "Did I? Are you kidding me? Now you you ask me this now?" And you know, it takes you about thirty seconds, right, to, to go <laughs> college. <laughs> your rock and roll dream, you know. And I said, oh, okay. He goes, no, this is real. He said, I'm going to have the manager call you, you know, and you can talk to him. And I, I said, well, I can't leave the shop. It's Christmas. <laughs> that was like my first, my responsibility to Rudy. I said, I can't leave the shop. I got to work through the holidays, man. And he goes, it's okay. I've talked to Rudy. We're, you know, we're taking a break at Christmas. You'll come down in, in January. Like, okay. So, you know, I go to work, talk to Rudy. Rudy's laughing. He said, so you got the phone call. Next thing I know, literally, I'm on, the, I'm on a plane. Mark came back at Christmas time. We hung out. New Year's Day, I'm sitting in first class for the first time in my life with him, Neil Dorfman, the producer and engineer for that album. And on the seat next to Neil was the um, digital tapes in their, the master's for the albums strapped in their own seat. Wow. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh man, 
I used to, that's like the Allman Brothers used to buy, <laughs> buy seats for their guitars. This is, um, this is really happening. Wow. Know? We were down there for a couple of months working on the album, came back to New York, continued to work on the album, started, started rehearsing. The album took forever. It was a mess. It was in pieces, and people were worried. Everybody was worried except for Mark. It was really interesting to watch. I, I had watched Love Over Gold go from his, his no, literally from his notebook, figuring out tunes in his living room to the finished project. So I, I, I had watched him work. I'd watched him do soundtracks and stuff. So I kind of knew, knew how he worked and all that stuff. And when he first, when I got there and he first pulled up some of the tracks, <laughs> my first reaction was, you've been here for four <laughs> months and this is what you've got? Wow. You know, it was like, what are these tunes? And he had approached that album in a totally different way. He, he had gone and done some Brian Ferry stuff and saw how Brian and Rhett Davies put um, Roxy Music albums together, which were basically, in a lot of ways, how Bowie and other guys were doing it. We're building up tracks and creating the tunes from, from the tracks. And Mark had always been, I'm writing a song, and then we go and do it. And the craziness, the, the surreal piece of it started from there in Montserrat. I had been working behind the counter of a guitar shop, ready to go back to university. I'm down in Montserrat in the studio that owned by George Martin, who one day I'm sitting after lunch, I'm sitting in the control room by myself. The door opens up and Sir George Martin walks in and sticks his hand out and introduces himself to me. Like, I don't know who he is. Hi, I'm, I'm George. A couple days later, you know, Neil Young comes wandering down the hallway you know, he had been sailing the Caribbean and just wanted to stop by and see the things like, wow, I've seen that guy. And he was in my first concert, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. It was just, and Sting shows up one day. And Mark, Sting, the police had recorded, recorded um, maybe Ghost in the Machine down there. I'm mm-hmm. not sure which, but recorded maybe one or two of their albums down there. And he was there on vacation with his family, and Mark invited him up to the studio to hang out and check some stuff out. And he had, Sting had dinner with us. And after dinner, Mark says, hey, come, come on down. There's a, a song that you know I want you to hear, and I want you to sing on it. Sting, we go down to the control room. We're sitting there, and I knew all the musicians in Sting's band. This was the year when he had the Blue Turtles band. So it was all New York musicians, Omar Hakim, um, Dolette McDonald, Janice Pendarvis singing. It was that band that was in the movie, the documentary that they did about it. So Sting and I were talking about you know music and musicians and jazz and all that kind of stuff. And he's sitting here, I'm sitting here, Mark's sitting on the other side of him. And Mark's, so we're lined up behind the control room and, and they put up the track for, of Money for Nothing. Right, we're listening to it. Everybody's listening to it and at the end of it. Yeah, but Mark says, to, you know, turns to Sting and says, Sting says, so what do you want me to sing? And, 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 Sting, and Mark sang him, you know, I want my, I want my MTV. Now that's the, those are the seven notes to don't stand so, don't stand so close to me. Never realized that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I knew that. And Sting looks at Mark and then he turns and looks at me and goes, is he effing kidding me? <laughs> and I said, no, he's serious. And I think, you know, I said, yeah, man, you should, you know, it'll be fun. 
And he thought about it for a minute and he said, okay. And he wandered into the, you know, rolled the tape and in two takes, you know, sort of did his parts on that and the barking dog at the end. And he was just having fun. Um, that whole thing came back around to the, to the point where Sting is the only person who's ever gotten writing credits on any song Mark has ever had written. He owns all his publishing except for that one too. <laughs> And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And when we come back, we're going to hear more with Jesse and the other guitarist from Dire Straits, Jack Sonny. More after these messages. American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. And now, back to our interview with the other guitarist from the Dire Straits, Jack Sonny, and his fascinating story. It was just surreal, right? I'm, I'm hanging out, This I'm leading this life. We go to, we come back to New York and hang out. I'm, all my friends are losing their minds. I'm, you know, having a great time. We go to England. We get off the airplane. At this point, the whole band has is, is gone back to, now I knew the band was big, you know, and um, but, you know, it hadn't been big in the States for a long time. And uh, so when I got to, we get off the plane, there's like paparazzi. I mean, there's like photographs. All these flashbulbs are going off. And I swear they got the back of my head because I kept turning around going, who are they taking pictures of? <laughs> and I had no idea how huge that band was in the rest of the world. I mean... In some places, like we played Israel, it was like the Beatles had arrived or something. There was like radio broadcasts. They've just gotten off the air, airplane. They're in their limousines. They're coming to the hotel. We got to the hotel. There's just like crowds. It was that was my first sort of you know taste of it. When we got to the states, the band, as I said, the band hadn't been that popular. They they had trouble with the promoters booking any place bigger than like the Fox Theater in Atlanta mm-hmm. or the Syria Mosque in Pittsburgh. The Wang Center in Boston, you know, smaller, like 18, 1500 seater, 1800 seaters. And then when the album blew up, suddenly we were playing the garden, you know, Madison Square Gardens and the Boston Gardens and, you know, the indoor arenas thing started to happen. Wembley Stadium in London, take our next great act, one of great great acts out of Great Britain, Dire Straits. Live Aid, Wembley Stadium, fully packed. We're, we're waiting behind stage to go on, and Sting comes up behind me. And, and nudges me, and he's going to come out and sing, sing his parts with us. And I was the one who would, who would lead those parts and sort of guide people. And, and he, he's, he's looking at me, and he's going, oh, I can't believe how many people out there. Are you nervous? I said, no, man, honestly. <laughs> I said, I've waited my entire life for this. This is, you know, this is it. And then, you know, uh, we did 250, 256 shows in 354 days. Incredible. Um, you know, That's a lot of work. Yeah. We did a, a series of shows in, in London where there were 14 shows in a row. Or when we got to Australia, it'd be like 26 or 30, literally, in, in Sydney. So we'd park up. But the rest of the time, it was, it was one-nighters. It'd be like 13, 14, 17 shows in a row in different cities. And that's what you did. You got up, got onto the bus, tried to sleep. Got, drove straight to the arena or the 
ice rink, whatever it was in Finland that you were playing, sit backstage while you listen to the drums, you know, sound check and everybody sound check all day, play the gig, get back to the hotel. The restaurant and the hotel would be closed. You know, you'd be left with like an egg salad sandwich from something and begging them to get, you know, open the bar or something. (laughs) Um, and it, you know, it it was exhausting, but th- it's what I wanted to do, man. I mean, it was like, okay, this is, I'm good. You guys toured for about 18 months? Mm-hmm. And then for, for whatever reason, Mark decided that he was just kind of done with the whole scene? Yeah, it was, um, the last show was in of the tour was in like late March or April uh, of 86. And we had done, done Australia. The band is all... British, except for me. We wake up the morning after the last show. The entire band and crew get on the bus to the airport, and I'm waving goodbye. Standing on the steps of the Siebel, Siebel Townhouse. It was the, the rock and roll hotel in Sydney. And I'm just like waving goodbye. And I'm not thinking that that's going to be the last time. I'm thinking, well, Mark's, he takes a break. He starts working on an album. He writes an album. Gets the band, they go back in, and the cycle just, that's what it had been all those years. Mm -hmm. And he just changed his mind, which, you know, is his prerogative and all that stuff. And I didn't, I hadn't heard from him. I moved to to L.A. Um, Record company people started convincing me that, you know, like, take advantage of this. It's time for your solo thing. We'll get you out there. And then, you know, you'll get back whenever Mark, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, sure, you know. Trouble was they wanted me, whatever I delivered, they wanted it to sound like Mark. And that's not what my stuff sounds like. So right. that, that that sort of, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in L.A. scraping around to get some work. Um, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols had a, had a project that I, you know, kind of might have bounced up against. We, we were talking about doing some things together Um few other folks um and I, out of the blue i don't even know how i heard i heard that from somebody that mark was in town uh producing i think randy newman's album at that time i was i was shocked that i hadn't heard from him you know and i tracked him you know tracked him down found out where you know i, I knew where he'd be staying and i can track him down talk to him and you know you know what's up, man? You talked about me playing on all these all these other projects and stuff, and and I played him some demos of the things that I was working on, and I said, I don't, I don't get it. I said, you know, we could be doing, and this is stuff I've never told anybody, man. You're getting, um, you know, I said, I said, man, you know, the stuff that we were getting into at the end end of that tour, there was a lot of guitar interplay. There was some really, I thought, wonderful stuff, and a lot of people thought it was good stuff. And it must have been, he must have liked it because he just let me do it. It became something that we would do. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, man, we could work on something. It could be like Derek and the Dominoes. We could be like, you know, playing some really cool guitar stuff. And he just looked at me and said, that's not what I want to do. And I was like, oh, so am I supposed to go back to work at Rudy's now? You know? And I think maybe I saw him once, once after that. We haven't talked since. I I hung around in L.A. My kids were born, and I got a job working for Seymour Duncan, who makes pickups. Very nice pickups. 
Yeah. And I had, I had been instrumental in helping them in their very early days in New York. I became like John the Baptist with those pickups on 48th Street and sold millions of them. So I had a great relationship. And I called them up and said, hey, you know, I don't know what I can do or what you need or whatever. Can we get together? Uh, you know, I'm going to quit touring. I got kids coming and need a career change. We got together with them and we had lunch and we were talking and Kathy, who's the owner, the president, she said, you know, I think you'd make a really good marketing manager and, you know, we need one of those and you can start, you know, in a couple of weeks. I was like, okay, <laughs> what's a marketing manager? <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and literally, you know, learned, learned on the job and found out that I really loved it. It, um, if, in high school, you know, if a guidance counselor had sort of really told me about this career in advertising or something, I, I might have gone in that direction. It's a great combination of creativity and writing, and I got to do all kinds of, I mean, I dove straight into doing ads, and I did that for 18 years. Wow. For different com- companies, Line 6, I worked for Line 6 for a while. Pod was, was my, my project and named it and the shape and all that stuff, and Went to work. The end of the career kind of was six years as vice president of advertising for Guitar Center Chain. Uh, when I came back from from Mexico, I was down there for about a year. Came back from Mexico, lived in Northern California. Uh, got accepted to a writer's residency program in Martha's Vineyard from the writing that I was doing, which shocked me. Um, but that has turned into a, a working relationship. I've I've been the writer in residence at this place for two, Noepe, uh, Martha's Vineyard. Center for Literary Arts for two years. I had worked on the memoir, so I went out and I, I got a list of agents and was like, bam, got like a really great agent in L.A. In LA right away. At least it seemed like it was a great agent. Um, <laughs> and she started shopping it around. And I, what I wrote was not like a rock and roll memoir. Um, I didn't want to write a Motley Crue book. I didn't want to write a sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. Those those stories have been told, and they're you know they kind of get boring after a while to me. <laughs> but I was much more interested in what it was in me that made me pursue that dream to the point that it almost killed me. You know, and I don't mean from drugs; I just mean just the the lifestyle and the the putting up with the disappointment. You know, what is it that makes us, and not just me, do that? You know, people chase those dreams. When do you know when to give up? You know. How do you live with yourself once you give up? Then what happens when you've given up and the dream gets handed to you and you think, because this all involves our identities, and then you think you've actually become this, this thing, this rock star, guitar player, guy that you've been chasing to become your entire life, or a big portion of it, and you're, you know, Eric Clapton is saying, man, you know, you play great. You've got to come and play with me and Townsend. And, you know, it's, it's like, this is kind of surreal. You become to believe it. And then it gets, it disappears just as quickly as it came. It was gone. I was, I woke up one day and it was literally like uh, Dorothy coming back from Oz, waking up, kind of going, whoa, I had this dream. And you were there and you were there and you were there. And you look in the mirror and you go, I don't even know who you are. And that was what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about how identity gets wrapped up in what we do as opposed to who we are and how you come to grips with 
accepting who you are and, and what happens in those, in those situations. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love these kinds of stories. Great work on that, Jesse. Talking to the other guitarist, Jack Sonning from Dire Straits. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear more. Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib, and we tell stories about all the big topics of life here. Love, work, faith, and of course, health. Here's our health editor, Jim Glassman, with our next look at healthcare in America. You're listening to the theme music of the Clint Eastwood movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, a spaghetti western about finding a gold fortune. But that title could just as easily have been describing health care in the 21st century. The good, well, patients are living longer and better than ever before. The bad, the system is so complicated that we don't have a clue how even the basic things work or cost. The ugly, well... Some parts of the healthcare and government bureaucracies are comically absurd. You couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. We'll get into that later, but I promise you that there's more good than ugly. This What Happens When episode is what happens when a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer and she's only 30 years old. And it comes to us from our field correspondent, Stan Dye. Take it away, Stan. For all the things that have changed in America since 1980, the number one and number two causes of death have stayed exactly the same. And despite what cable news would have you believe, those chart toppers are not tropical infections or gun violence, and you know what? Not even evil clowns hiding in the woods. No, no, no. The first is heart disease, and the second is cancer. As I was looking around for cancer stories, I get the fun assignments around here. I bumped into a group called the Young Survival Coalition and a state leader named Julie Klasky. She wrote beautifully about her own fight against stage four metastatic breast cancer, a cancer that can be slowed but not cured, the kind of breast cancer that claims by far the most lives. More on that later. This is the sort of diagnosis that would send many people into doom and gloom mode, but not Julie. She wanted us to hear and share stories of young women fighting cancer. And within just a few days, Julie connected me with dozens of absolutely amazing ladies. Here's one of them. I'm Tori Guide. I am 30 years old. I live in Belfountain, Ohio. I actually grew up in Marion, Ohio. I graduated from Mount Vernon Nazarene University 
in 2009. I went on after that to go to Columbus State for culinary school and graduated in 2012. Tori then became a chef. And if you're lucky enough to have some chefs as friends, then you already know that they're all a bunch of workaholic maniacs who know how to have a good time. But just as Tori's career was taking off, this happened. I was 29, and it was a total fluke of how I found my lump. I actually was just sleeping and woke up and thought that I was laying on my cell phone. I was on my, laying on my side. I usually don't lay on my right side, but reached over. My phone wasn't there, but I found something hard. So I got a little concerned, but I, I wanted to kind of make sure what was going on with that. So my mom is actually a nurse. I went and had her feel it because I was like, something just doesn't feel right. And I've, I've had some cysts in the past, so you know, you kind of talk yourself out of it, of anything being wrong, because you don't hear about people that are 30 years old or about to be 30 years old that have problems like breast cancer. No, you really don't. There are about 300,000 cases of breast cancer diagnosed per year in America. And the two most significant risk factors are biological sex and age. Women are at far higher risk than men. But guys, we're not in the clear. There are in fact 2,500 cases of male breast cancer diagnosed per year. But that's a whole different story. And like most cancers, risk increases with age. Tori's own grandmother had breast cancer. But it wasn't until well into her 60s. Now, Tori was nowhere near 60. But just in case... She went to her doctor to get everything checked out. I went in, saw my doctor that same day. That's one of the nice things about being in a small town. They can get you right in. She felt the area and said, you know, we, we really need to get you in and get this checked out and, you know, get this get these scans done, see what's going on. So my birthday was that coming up weekend and I really was just like, Oh, I don't wanna I don't wanna go do anything medical and if it com- comes back that it is something, I wanna be at least able to enjoy my birthday. And they only did the scans on Mondays in my town. So they have comprehensive days where they'll do the scans and they'll do the biopsies all on the same day. So they they wanted to do it on March 4th, but I was going to Nashville for my birthday. So I asked, can we just do it the next week? And she said, yeah, that's fine. Um, Nobody was really expecting it to be anything. Or if it was, it was supposed to be very early. So, you know, putting it off a week just so I could... You know, have my weekend and go on with my my normal for a little bit was just something I, I really needed at that time. So I went ahead, put it off just for a week and went in on March 7th. I had the scan done. They went ahead and actually did an ultrasound as well. And they they were concerned. Uh, the, the radiologist that was there was also concerned. And they, they said, you know, you're going to have to come back the next the next week to go ahead and do a biopsy. And my idea was, why wait? I'm already here, I'm stressed out, let's just get this done, let's get it over with. So they went ahead and made some calls, I called my boss just to let him know because I was gonna have to be off for a couple days. And they they went ahead, did the, the biopsy. It takes a week to get back. So I waited the week, nerves were going, but they, they were looking at things and they told me, you know, if it does come back as anything, you're young, it's going to be early stage, we caught it early, you're good, it looks really small, so there's there's no way that it's anything major, you're good to go. I came back the next week on March 14th and they sat me down and told me that it did come back as breast cancer. Obviously, I, I was crushed. 
I cried. I still cry sometimes, but I, I just didn't know what to do. I felt completely hopeless. Like, everything in my world was just about to change. Because you see the images of the people with no hair and being sick and being emaciated. and It's, it's those thoughts that were going through my head. And when we come back, more of Tori's story, our What Happens When installment. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Tori Geib's story. She was doing great as a young chef, but then she found a lump, and her doctors told her it was probably early-stage cancer. Here's Stan with more of her story. After diagnosing Tori's lump as breast cancer, her doctors noticed something else. They said, you know, there is one other area we want to go ahead and biopsy that we saw the scans that was just really small that we just want to double check. And I was like, fine, let's go ahead and do it. So they went ahead and did that second biopsy and said that they were going to go ahead and send my information down to Stephanie Spielman, which is part of the James Cancer Hospital OSU. I got a call back about the second biopsy because we already knew I had cancer, so it wasn't necessarily a sit-down conversation at that point. The type of breast cancer that they said that I had, it was called invasive ductal carcinoma. They were expecting it to be really early. They're like, oh, you're, you're good. You're young. I ended up getting down to Stephanie Spielman on March 23rd and was seen by the doctor. Even then, it was very much, you caught this early. Things weren't bad. They went ahead and scheduled me to meet with medical oncology, too. And I'd been having pain in my back for probably six months. I worked as a chef, so I would be looking large bags and boxes and cases. So I was used to having a little bit of back pain with that. But my medical oncologist is uh, Raquel Reinbold. She really wanted to just go ahead and do those scans just to kind of confirm what was going on in that area. So we went ahead during the meantime and scheduled kind of the the beginning stage things that you go through with breast cancer. So we scheduled getting a port placement because I was going to be having to do IV chemo just to kind of shrink the area and give it some good margins on the tumor. So we were going to go ahead and place the port and get, get the basic things done while we were waiting for these scans to come back. So we did the scan and it came back that it was showing I had a lesion on my spine. And she's like, well, you know, it's probably nothing but let's go ahead and biopsy it just to make sure what's going on there. So I went ahead and I, it was actually two days after I had my port placement for my chemo. I went in and they, they did a scan or did the biopsy on my spine. And a couple days later, I got a phone call. It came back that the cancer had metastasized to my spine. So what originally everyone was telling me, you know, it's early, you're good, you caught it, you're young, you're going to beat this, suddenly became a death sentence just because, once it metastasizes, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. There really is no such thing as a good news cancer diagnosis, but that word cancer still covers a very wide range of diseases and stages of disease that have very different outcomes. For example, breast cancer is actually very treatable when caught as stage 0 or 1, which is when the out-of-control cells 
are relatively few in number and have not spread. In fact, over a five-year period, women diagnosed and treated for stage 0 or 1 breast cancer have survival rates that are indistinguishable from women who don't have cancer at all. But stage 4, or metastatic breast cancer, is an entirely different animal. That's when breast cancer cells spread throughout the body and take root in new organs, wreaking havoc wherever they land. Remember that back pain Tori mentioned? Well, as she says, that's because there were breast cancer cells on her bones, turning those bones into Swiss cheese. Once a chef, always a chef. This type of cancer is currently incurable, meaning that even though there are treatments and drugs that can extend patients' lives by years, it is still a terminal diagnosis. Until the next great medical breakthrough, stage 4 breast cancer patients will die from the disease. It took a while for Tori's actual diagnosis to sink in. At the time, I think I was still kind of being a cheerleader with my attitude and very much, oh, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to beat this, I'll still be okay. But that was really before I learned about what, what was going on in my body because with metastatic breast cancer, the average life expectancy is 18 to 24 months where most breast cancers in early stages are able to be treated or put into remission. There's no such thing as remission for stage four. So it, it was definitely heartbreaking, you know, going through all this and um, having those goals in life of, you know, I always wanted to be a mom and just not not having that option anymore because my my cancer is hormone positive. Which means that when the breast cancer cells are around hormones like estrogen and progesterone from the ovaries, they grow even faster. So they had to shut down all of my my ovaries so I'm not able to have kids. And we had to act so quickly because once they started getting in there and scanning and finding where all these places I had metastasis, it, it was just everywhere. Um, I actually have metastasis areas on my bones, my both of my lungs, my liver, and my kidney. And ironically, you hear a lot about breast cancer traveling through the lymphatic system and the lymph nodes. Mine isn't in my lymph nodes. My lymph nodes are fine. There's no inflammation. It's actually traveled through my blood. So it's a little bit different than some of the other types of breast cancers. And, you know, it it was it was a change of plan. That chemo port that I got, I, I wasn't going to be doing IV chemo anymore, which it was kind of a twofold thing because, you know, yeah, I was absolutely glad I wasn't going to be having to do IV chemo, but at the same time, not like this, not in the way that someone looks at you and tells you there's a good chance that you're not going to be here in three years. As Tori was struggling to come to terms with this devastating diagnosis, she had to help her loved ones do the same. It was very hard and having to tell my family and tell my friends and and even then um, just hearing from them being that cheerleader that I was before and trying to reach out to me and say you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay and really it's it's not, it's not okay and you know some sometimes those types of comments you know you, you want to put on the face of your friends and family, you want to be you want to be happy and you don't want to be the quote-unquote dying girl but 
you you want to project that you're okay to your friends and family. And of course, the struggle wasn't just emotional. I was having some pain in some different areas. Obviously, my back, the, the primary area that they went ahead and scanned. Also, my collarbone, I was having a lot of issues. So they went ahead and scanned those. They actually found I had a broken clavicle and my T12 in my spine, so in the middle of my back, that bone was actually crushed. Um, it was broken and crushed. So they went in and did a procedure in my back to stabilize that bone. And then for my, for my back and for my collarbone, we did radiation treatment. They were okay at first. Um, they, at first I was like, oh, this isn't bad. I don't see what everybody's talking about. I'm not having burns. It's, it's all right until they started working on my back with the radiation. <laughs> um, I did 20 treatments altogether of the two forms of radiation. And by the end of it, I, I was so nauseous. The, the nausea was horrible. I wasn't able to eat regular foods for almost two months. As if all of that weren't tough enough, Tori had to do one more thing. I've had to quit my job because I'm not allowed to lift anymore can't do more than five pounds, so obviously lifting a 25-pound case to do foods is it's just not possible anymore. And it was a lot of concessions on my pride because I was always a very hard worker. I worked since I was 14 years old, at least part-time somewhere, and I was always very proud of that. I was a hard worker, and for me, having to leave my job and go on to disability at the age of 30, I was just like, what the heck is going on? This, this isn't me. This isn't the life that I, I wanted for myself or envisioned. And I went ahead and I, I conceded. I did what I needed to do because I wanted to get better. I mean, the, the best that I could be. And you're listening to Tori Geib. And this is our What Happens When series. And this 30-year-old, my goodness, what a voice, what courage. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about her saga. And for any of you who are suffering from cancer or have family who are or have had it, you're going to really want to hear the next segment. It's unusual. It's a story and a side of this story that you don't know and you've never heard. More after these messages. Tori Geib's story here. On our American stories. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. Why he had to go? I don't know. He wouldn't say. I said. Yesterday, yesterday, 
And we're back with more of our healthcare series, What Happens When, and our health editor, Jim Glassman, always on top of these things and Stan in the field uh, doing the groundwork. And this story is all about a young woman in Ohio named Tori Geib, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 30. She soon learned that she had the metastatic kind that spreads throughout the body and can quickly kill. Tori had to quit the chef job she loved, and you could hear the pain. That was probably the unkindest cut of all. And then she had to turn her full attention to herself and her health. Tori turned the same incredible drive that helped her to excel as a chef to fighting cancer. She and her medical team quickly went from radiation and surgery to ongoing drug therapy. They went ahead and put me on an aramase inhibitor, which some people call it a chemo pill. It's not really a, a chemo pill. It, it's different. But it, the, the medication that they put me on after all of the radiation, and I was feeling a little bit better, I had had progression in my cancer. So my, my meds had been progressing throughout my body. I've been having a lot more pain in my back and my ribs. And they put me on this new medication that had come out earlier in the year. And I actually just had my three-month scans this past month, and my disease is stable. So what that means is that during the time that I've been on the medication from scan to scan, the disease hasn't been spreading. It's kind of maintained where it is, and it's actually gotten smaller in some of the areas. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely thankful for that. I asked Tori to tell us more about these drugs that are keeping her stable. Now, they're not curing the disease, but they are buying time. Time for research and time for Tori to enjoy life. It's called Ibrance. I'm doing that and and another pill called Letrozole. So I take those in combination, and because I'm hormone positive, it, it stops the hormones in my body, and I also get a shot in my belly every month of two different medications to kind of suppress everything and all my hormones and keep those in check. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's a lot of fatigue with it. The nice thing with the pill that I take is I don't get to, I don't lose my hair. So I've, I've been able to keep my hair, even the, the pink streak that I put in before I was, thought I was going to lose it to chemo. And I was like, oh, I'm going to lose it anyway. I'll put a little pink in there. No, it, it, it's still there. So, but I mean, that's, it's not the worst thing. I'm, I'm good. I mean, there's a lot of fatigue with it. The met, they're painful, especially the bone nets. They're very painful. But I started into palliative care a couple months ago, and they finally got me on a good pain control management. And it's, it's really been helping. With a combination of drugs keeping her cancer in check and her pain at a manageable level, Tori next had to struggle with massive government and healthcare bureaucracies. Because while the medical team and drugs were amazing, miraculous even, someone needed to pay for them. Here's Tori taking us back to an almost unbelievable conversation with a lady while trying to get onto Medicaid. I'm sitting across a desk talking to this woman, and she she was in tears saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing that I can do for you. I wish there was. With being off of work as long as I had been on disability, I ended up actually losing my health insurance coverage. And because of where I fell, because of my disability paying, 60% of my former wages, I actually didn't qualify for any type of 
financial assistance for a lot of different places or with uh, Medicaid or any of those programs. And in my state, there's a program for breast and cervical cancer patients that helps them if they've been denied for Medicaid. It's kind of a little extra cushion. And I was denied for it, even though I have stage four breast cancer, because I'm under the age of when they consider breast cancer to be a problem. They don't cover anyone under the age of 40 for any reason, even if they have breast cancer. And for me, it was just like, what the heck? Because, you know, if, if I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm, I have stage four breast cancer and I can't get help from a breast cancer program because I'm not old enough. It, it was just crazy to me. It, it was just, it was very discouraging because all I could think about was how am I going to pay for my, my treatments? Because I didn't find out in a letter from my insurance that I had been dropped. I actually had, my, my medication was supposed to come to me through the mail. It's one of the, the mail pharmacies. And uh, I, I didn't get my prescription in the mail. And I called the pharmacy. I said, hey, um, I just wanted to check and make sure because I didn't get my eye brands today. And they said, well, it, you don't have insurance and we can't send you the medication without payment. And I was just like, well, how much is it? And that's when they told me it'll be a little over 10000 for the month. And my heart just fell to my stomach. Like, I, I don't know what to do. And all I could do is I called my doctor's office crying and saying, I don't know what to do. Can what do you, do you guys know of anything I can do? And within an hour, I had a list of resources in my email saying, you try this, we'll try this, we'll meet in the middle. Because I knew that, you know, I wanted to be a participant in this. I wanted to work to, to find something. And, and having that panic of, oh my God, I'm not going to have my medication. You know, what if I'm a week off of my medication and my cancer progresses? Because that's a fear. If you go off your medication, it progresses and you can't go back on the medication. It's like, what's next? And, and it's terrifying. There were a lot of tears that week, just trying to figure things out and, and knowing that the, the insurance had actually cut off three weeks prior to when I got that medication, but that was the first thing that I had gotten that was billed to the, to the insurance that I would have received right away and not just gotten a bill in the mail from a hospital. Actually, during the time that my insurance had been cut, that I wasn't aware of it, I had a hospital stay for four days. And I looked on my account online after they told me that that had been denied. And I had $24,000 in medical bills. So there she was, a whopping 20 bucks a month too wealthy to get help from Medicaid and too young to get help from the Ohio State program. Hey, uh, did anybody copy the cancer on that memo? She was still facing tens of thousands of dollars in bills for life-saving drugs and care. And really, who among us could casually write a check for that amount out of pocket? Having worked and worked hard since childhood, Tori hated the very idea of a handout. But she knew that there's such a thing as misplaced pride. She called her doctor's office and played face-up poker. Corey explained her financial situation fully and honestly, and the great folks at the clinic immediately understood. They told Tori that drug companies have financial assistance programs exactly to help folks like her. 
And since that $10,000 a month life-saving iBrands is a Pfizer product, start with them. Their assistance program is called Pathways. And when we come back, we're going to hear about Pathways. And we're going to hear about Tori Guy. But my goodness, I know you're already in love with her because we are here. And what a story and what a storyteller. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do, including our What Happens When segments. More often than not, they're a full hour because these are the stories that happen to all of our lives. This labyrinth that we get caught up in with these rules that make no sense to anybody. Very complicated. But what a beautiful story this is. And when we come back more with Tori Geib here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're getting to the last part of this incredible story of a young woman diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, the kind that kills. Tori Geib had to swallow her pride and stop working as the cancer spread through her body, but then Medicaid wouldn't help her because she made $20 too much a month, and an Ohio State program turned her down for being too young. Now let's go back to Tori, taking us to the moment when she called the drug company itself for help. They make the product, keeping her cancer in check. But would they help with the mounting bills? When I applied through Pfizer Pathways, it was a really quick process. It was really humbling to, to be able to call. And they were so amazing. They were so nice. It wasn't oh, another person calling to get something for free. It wasn't like that at all. They know that people that are calling are needing help. And you're already going through a tough time. They're not trying to make it harder on you. They were so kind, and they answered the questions that I had. And even when I said, I don't know if I'm going to qualify for this, they were encouraging, and they said, well, let's try. Let's see what we can do for you. And I appreciated that so much. I've had places that I've applied for for assistance that it, it wasn't the case, and it was really difficult and really hard. When I applied for one of the programs, I got a letter back that said, um, well, it looks like you qualify for Medicaid, so you know, apply through Medicaid and see what they can do for you. And it was so frustrating because I had sent papers to them saying that I had been denied. And it's, it's because my income was so close to qualifying. It was, it was really, it was hard, and I had to go through that 
burden of proof with all of these different places. But I would say out of any of the ones that I worked with, finding help or finding assistance for prescription medications, Pfizer was absolutely amazing helping. From the moment that Tori realized that her drugs were being held up because she did not have the insurance to pay for it, to getting all of this worked out, only a week and a half passed. And Pfizer wasn't the only one that answered Tori's call. Her medical team was at Ohio State University, and OSU has a program to help pay the bills of patients needing a hand. Tori also spoke glowingly about her local Logan County, Ohio, Cancer Society. I know the the person at the Cancer Society that I call, and her name is Jane, and I, I'll call her, and they, they help with my prescriptions that go through my pharmacy here locally. My my clinic is an hour away from my home. They give me gift cards for to help cover my travel expenses for each time that I go down there. I mean, it's it's amazing the type of things that are out there that can really help you because things add up. I mean, when you're going to treatment, when I was doing radiation, I was going an hour each way, five days a week, and that adds up in gas, especially when you're not working. So having programs out there that will help you cover those costs, it's it's amazing and it's it's really it's really humbling and it makes you appreciate all of these different local fundraisers and these organizations that are out there. American philanthropy working exactly as it should. So what's Tori going through now? The treatment that I'm on is keeping me stable. So for right now, it's working and it's doing a good job. It's doing what it's supposed to do. It's keeping the cancer where it is. It's not letting the cancer grow outside of these areas. It, it pretty much, it's put a pause button on the cancer, but pause is not stopped. So eventually your body will learn how to get around these different medications and, and you develop immunities. So they have to change up your treatments. Obviously the goal is to try to be on the treatment as long as you can for each different type of treatment. We do scans every three months to just make sure medication's still working. We'll, we'll keep fighting this until we get to a point where the treatment's not working anymore. And then at that point, we'll hope, hopefully there'll be something out there by that point. But um, it's, it's scary when you see your friends that are, you know, 35 and under. When you see 19-year-olds getting this disease, when you see, you know, my, my friend that's 33 years old that's on hospice right now that has two kids, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And we, we need more. We need more research. We need more people that are advocating for research and donating to research and not just donating to awareness. I think, I think at this point, we're, we're very aware that it exists. It's, it's time to stop putting so much money towards awareness and putting more money towards research and finding the cures for this disease so that we don't have 10,000 people dying from this disease a year. I mean, it's, it's crazy and it's, it's heartbreaking and we, we, we need better. We need to get this and get it under control. Tori was originally diagnosed with cancer two weeks after her 30th birthday in 2016. When we talked later that year, she had nine fractures from the breast cancer cells spreading onto her bones. A few months later, that number had almost doubled. But the good news is that Tori is still stable on Ibrance. Her cancer has not spread. In all this time, researchers have been hard at work 
trying to find more pause buttons to slow cancer. And of course, the real goal, to find the stop button. She's finding new ways to manage pain, and she's still living a very challenging life very well. There's, there's no point in sitting around and feeling sorry for myself. Are there days where I'm like, why did this happen to me? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I mean, there, there are definitely those times where I'm like, this sucks. I, I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't, I don't want to have cancer today. And, and there's some days where I tell my family or my friends that I'm with, I'm like, today, we're not allowed to talk about cancer. You know, today's a no cancer day. And, you know, so if they respect the rules, they get to hang out. If not, they're out for the day. <laughs> but, but you gotta, you have to set boundaries and sitting around and, and crying and feeling sorry for myself isn't helping me get better. And if it comes down to me only being here for three years, which is the average lifespan for a metastatic person, I don't want my friends and family to look back at those three years with me and say that I was down all the time, I was depressed all the time. I want to be like, she lived. She did everything she could do and more. And she lived. Like, that's what I want to be known for. And thank you for that. As always, Dan, great work. And Tori, what a voice. What a lady. And thanks, by the way, to Jane at the local cancer club, the doctors, the nurses, and thanks, too, to the folks at Pfizer. What a story and what a citizen. What a citizen of this country and what a generous citizen and just didn't know that story. And we bring on now Jim Glassman, our health editor. And, Jim, I did not know that the patient assistant programs that drug companies like Pfizer have account for 10 of the largest 15 U.S. charities in this country and provided $6.5 billion of support in 2014 alone. Talk about that. Yeah, it's truly amazing. I mean, I mean uh, you take a company like Pfizer, its patient assistance program shelled out last year about $700 million to help patients. And, and the reason for these things existing, these, these foundations, is the structure of insurance programs in the United States. Now, I realize Tory kind of fell in between the cracks, but there are a lot of people with commercial insurance that still have to pay many thousands of dollars a month for their drugs if it were not for these foundations. And, you know, insurance companies really ought to be insuring people against the worst calamities not to pay for the ten dollars that you have to that you would pay for a generic satin drug. It's kind of ridiculous the way these things are structured. But that's the truth. And that's what we worry about, Jim. We all worry about that catastrophic bill. We don't Absolutely. worry about the ten bucks and the fifty bucks. That's not why I have insurance. Let's talk about the the prospects for, for Tory. We were talking off break that this uh, this drug may buy her ten months it might buy her 12 months, maybe a little more. And a lot of people say, oh, 10 months, 12 months, is it worth it? But Jim, all the research is happening in this space. Talk about that. So Tori mentioned letrozole, and a study found that with letrozole alone, the progression-free survival, that is, where the disease doesn't get any worse, is 10 months. But with Ibrantz combined with letrozole, it's 20 months. So you're basically buying an extra 10 months. And during that time, tremendous strides are being made in oncology, on research on cancer drugs. And we're in a golden age of oncology right now. We're going to see things in the next few years that you just would not believe. And so I think that thanks to Ibrance and other drugs like it, Tori really has a chance where previously she might not have had any kind of chance. And that's the good news, that scientists are at work right now in our nation's drug companies, the NIH, all over the country at universities. And Jim, thanks as always for 
trying to clear up some things and bringing us stories like this. This was a this was a powerful one, Jim. And Jim Glassman is who we're talking to. He's our health editor here at Our American Stories. Our What Happens When series today featured Tori Guybe and What Happens When You Get Diagnosed with Cancer at the Age of 30. Thanks for all you do, Jim. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And to capture all that we do on this subject, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look for our What Happens When series. And every once in a while, every couple of weeks, we're going to be giving you another hour and another hour to try and get you to understand and teach you a little bit more about our complicated, complicated health care system. 